and uh, what a blessing it is to be with you today. Amen? All right, you ready to dive into God's Word? First, got to share a little story with you. So it was a few weeks ago, Christine and I went out on a date, and we got home from the date, and our youngest daughter, Kara, kind of had a funny look on her face. Nine-year-old Kara led us over to the kitchen counter, and on that kitchen counter, we saw this. A little dry erase board where she had written this little note. I really, 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 really want a hamster. Please, I love you so much. Answer on the left, yes, with a smiley face, or no on the right, with the frown and the tears. And next to the dry erase board there on the kitchen counter was this. A little type note that read, Adoptions, we need your help. There is a hamster out there in this world that needs your help. Everyone deserves a chance to live a happy life. Get at your Kleenex because this is just really a tearjerker here. That life is not wanted in a box in the pet store. We want a responsible child who will love and care for it. Help these animals have a chance to be loved. Hurry into PetSmart and adopt a hamster soon. So as Christine and I read that second little note, we knew one of two things had happened. Either our nine-year-old had miraculously learned how to spell correctly and write at a junior high level, or her sisters were conspiring with her and helping her with this whole effort to get mom and dad to buy her a hamster. Well, Christine and I said, we will think about it. Now, we were hoping, in all honesty, that after a day or two, she'd forget all about it. But she kept asking and asking and asking. So after a few days, I came up with this resolution. Okay, if you will contribute $30 to the purchase of a hamster in the cage and all the supplies, we will buy you a hamster. Now, I figured best case scenario, it would take her three to four weeks to earn 30 bucks. But immediately, Kara starts doing extra chores around the house. And when I'm gone, she's working on mom. And she goes to Christine and says, I've got this Starbucks gift card with eight bucks left on it. Will you, can I give you this and you give me eight dollars instead? So she's trading mom money for partially used Starbucks gift cards. And before I know it, the kid has 30 bucks. And so, We went over to PetSmart, and we went over to Petco, and I want to introduce you to the newest member of the Davis family. I want to introduce you to little Coco. Little Coco is the newest member of our family, and in this final picture here, our little nine-year-old Kara is so excited. When I think about that, And I had given her that challenge of $30 she needed to earn to contribute to the purchasing of this hamster. By the way, she somehow found a real cheap hamster. Normally they're 16 bucks. She got this one for five. So she's she's a wheeler and dealer. But when I gave her that challenge, you know what? She was a little girl on a mission. She was a girl on a mission. She was bound and determined to get that 30 bucks as quickly as possible so she could bring Coco home. And now with that face lit up, She's, over the last week, been loving on that little hamster and having a good old time. Today, we want to talk about being on mission. And as we open our Bibles together to Luke chapter 9, we're going to see that Jesus is going to undergo a shift in his ministry. 
and give his 12 disciples, we also call them the 12 apostles, he's going to give them a mission. You see, in the first few chapters of Luke, as Jesus began his ministry, uh, he was in the first phase of his ministry where it pretty much went like this. Jesus would go from town to town on his own and do all the ministry himself. He then entered a second phase of his ministry when he chose 12 of his followers to be designated disciples and apostles. And so that second phase of his ministry, these 12 men, handpicked by Jesus Christ, would be with him night and day and shadow Jesus. Everywhere he went, they went. And they would help him in his ministry. But during that second phase of ministry, even though those 12 disciples were with him everywhere he went, Jesus still did all of the teaching and he still worked all of the miracles. Here at the start of chapter 9, he's going to enter this third phase of his ministry where he is going to give his 12 apostles power and authority to replicate what he is doing. And it's an important shift in his ministry as Jesus is more and more preparing these 12 men to carry on the mission that Jesus would entrust to their care when he would one day ascend back into heaven. And so I'm calling this message today, 12 Men on a Mission. I encourage you to have your Bibles in hand. I never want you just to take the preacher's word for it on a Sunday morning. Just as we challenged you last week with a challenging message, you open the Word of God and test it with Scripture. See for yourself that what is being taught is in line with God's Word. So I encourage you to be in Luke 9. Also have the message notes handy from your bulletin along with a pen or pencil to jot down some notes and fill in some blanks along the way. And as we're in Luke chapter 9, say amen. Before I read it, let's start in a word of prayer. Father, this is your word. Lord, we want to faithfully hear your word, receive your word, and live out your word for your glory and not our own. Lord Jesus, be with us in this room. And if if there's part of this message, Lord, that that, uh, the enemy, Satan, does not want us to hear, I pray that you would shut him out of this place Remove every distraction. Remove anything that might get in the way of us hearing and receiving what you have in mind for us today through your holy word. And all God's people said, Amen. Turn to the person next to you ask him, Are you ready to dive into God's word today? All right, do they seem ready or do I need to yell? Okay. I remember years ago, uh, D. James Kennedy, pastor of Coral Ridge Church over in Fort Lauderdale, he used to say there was the old preacher who would write in his notes, Beside his message, he would write in those notes in the margin, he would say, pound pulpit here, argument weak. And sometimes pastors do that. They get louder and start yelling when they think their point's not quite as strong or biblically ground as it should be. But uh, we try not to yell around here for no reason. Amen? Hopefully when I yell or raise my voice, it's because of a passion for God's word or something he especially wants us to hear. So we're in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Here we go. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house that you enter, stay there until you have Uh, Stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village preaching the gospel and telling people everywhere. May God bless us as we study his word today. 
Up to this time in Jesus' ministry, Jesus was doing all of the teaching. He was performing all of the miracles. The twelve disciples were right there when Jesus calmed the storm. But they were just helplessly spectators as Jesus calmed the storm. There was really nothing in their own power that they could do to stop it. They were right there when Jesus drove the demons out of that gathering demoniac. We looked at that several weeks ago. They were right there observing firsthand what Jesus was doing to drive out those demons, but they were powerless to do it themselves. In that passage we looked at a couple weeks ago, when that woman with the issue of internal hemorrhaging needed to be healed because for 12 long years she'd gone to the doctors and she'd taken all the medicines and nothing worked. She was still hemorrhaging. When she went to reach out and touch the hem of a garment, she didn't reach out to touch the hem of Peter's garment, did she? She didn't reach out to touch the hem of John or or Thomas or Judas Iscariot's garment. Why didn't she reach out and touch their garment? Because it wouldn't have done any good. They didn't have the ability, they didn't have the power to heal. When she wanted healing, she reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' garment. And so they didn't have the power to heal, they didn't have the power to perform miracles, they didn't have the authority to drive out demons, and they didn't have the authority to faithfully preach God's message, the kingdom of heaven, until now. The time had come for Jesus' trainees to put their learning into practice. Look again at what it says in verse 1. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them what? Power and authority. Now, let's stop there and look at those two words, power and authority. I don't like to throw a lot of Greek words at you on a Sunday morning, but I think these two are very important ones. First of all is the Greek word dunamis. Say that with me. Dunamis. Dunamis is the Greek word translated into English as power. Dunamis is a great word. It means a divine ability to accomplish the impossible. That's a pretty cool definition, don't you think? Dunamis. Same word is used in Acts 1.8 where Jesus is about to go into heaven and he tells his disciples, you know what? You need to stay in Jerusalem. And in a little while, you will receive dunamis power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And remember what happens when the Holy Spirit did come in power. They were able to speak in everyone's native tongue, their native languages. They went out in the streets and spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that day, 3,000 people were saved and baptized because of the power of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus' disciples. And so here, in Luke chapter 9, he says, I am going to give you power, dunamis, an ability, a divine ability to accomplish the impossible. As Jesus gives the twelve apostles power here in this first verse of chapter 9, he infuses them with miraculous abilities that they would not otherwise have had on their own. Next is the Greek word exousia. Say that with me. Exousia. That's a word translated as authority. Exousia is the right the permission to carry out the Lord's mission. And so both of these are critical. First of all, they needed the power to heal. They needed the power to perform miracles. And they needed the authority, the right or the permission to do those things. And particularly the authority to drive out demons and have those demons respond by coming out. 
and the authority to authoritatively preach God's message that Jesus Christ was preaching. I like how Warren Wearsby summarizes these two words. He says it this way, Power is the ability to accomplish a task, and authority is the right to do it. And Jesus gave both to his apostles. It's well said. So up until now, the 12 disciples didn't have the ability to heal a sick person. They didn't have the Lord's permission to teach his life-changing gospel message. Now they had both, his miracle-working ability and his gospel-sharing permission. Now in verses 1 and 2, we're told that he gave them authority and power to do four things. Number one, to drive out all demons. Number two, to cure all diseases. Number three, to preach the kingdom of God. And number four, to heal the sick. Now, I think numbers one, two, and four don't need a whole lot of explanation. I just want to say this briefly about number one there, to drive out demons. I think this is pretty awesome that he gives them the ability to drive out little demons and big demons, right? Because it says here, all demons, correct? So he gives them authority to drive out the little ones and the big ones the ones that have just maybe entered a person, and the ones that have been deeply entrenched inside a person possibly for years. Demons that are freely going to go at the name of Jesus and demons who stubbornly refuse to go, but because of the power and authority Jesus gives his apostles, those demons will have to vacate anyway. Amen? And so one thing that I was thinking about with this, what a remarkable thing. Let me ask you, did Jesus give all 12 of his apostles power and authority? Did he give it to all 12? It seems very clear he did, right? So that means he gave Judas Iscariot power and authority to drive out demons. So Judas Iscariot is going around from town to town driving out demons, and they had to obey his command for them to leave a person when he spoke in the name of Jesus. And so Judas Iscariot at this point in time is an exorcist driving out demons, And less than two years later, it would say that he was full of the devil as he went out to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. How sad is that? At this point in time, he's driving out demons. And just a little while later, he would allow himself to be filled with the prince of demons. What a sad, sad statement about Judas. Well, let's zero in on the third task here that Jesus gave his disciples. It was to preach the kingdom of God. Now, what does it mean to preach the kingdom of God? I think it's important for us to know what the message was that Jesus' disciples were preaching. So if you go down a few verses to verse 6, Luke describes that message this way. He says they were preaching the gospel. So these terms are synonymous. Preaching the kingdom of God is the same as preaching the gospel. So we ask the question, what does it mean to preach the gospel? Well, most of us know the word gospel means good news. And so they were preaching the good news, and we asked then the good news about what? Now, this is an important question because when we today in 2019 in the church speak about preaching the good news, usually we focus in on the good news of the DBR of Jesus Christ. The DBR stands for the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the core of the gospel, is it not? It's the core of the gospel. When we tell people about Jesus, we do tell them about his life, but we focus in on his death on the cross for their sins, that he was buried, and then he rose again and conquered death. So we serve a risen Savior. Amen? 
But at this point in time, Jesus hadn't died yet. Jesus hadn't been buried yet, and obviously he hadn't risen from the grave yet. So what was the good news about Jesus at this point in time if he hadn't sacrificed himself on the cross yet? And so this is where cross-references, I think, can help us out. If you look at this passage in Luke chapter 9, some of you in your study Bibles up above uh, verse 1, your study Bible will indicate that the same passage can be found in the book of Matthew and in the book of Mark. You can find the same story of Jesus commissioning the 12 disciples in Matthew uh, chapter 10 and in Mark chapter 6. So I went back and looked at Matthew 10 and Mark 6 to see if Jesus might explain there a little bit more about what this message was that they preached. And lo and behold, right there in Mark chapter 6 verse 12, it says the disciples went out and preached that the people should repent. They preached that the people should repent. And so part of sharing the kingdom of God, this message, part of sharing the good news was the disciples going town to town and telling the people, you need to repent. Now, this lines up perfectly with what Mark says Jesus' main message was in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, when Jesus was in his first phase of ministry out by himself preaching the good news. Mark 1, 14 and 15 says, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. And here was the message. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. So a key part of Jesus' message when he preached the good news was, you need to repent. A key part of the disciples' message when they went from town to town, by the way, it doesn't say here in Luke 9, but we learn this from Matthew and Mark, they went in pairs of two. And so he sent them out, the twelve, two by two. There were six groups of two that went out into the surrounding towns to replicate Jesus' ministry. And so part of this message, a key part, was you need to repent. And what does that mean? Well, repentance, as we say a lot around here at FCC, is a spiritual U-turn. The word metanoia is the Greek word translated as repent. It literally means a change of mind that leads to a change in your heart and a change in the way you behave. And so repentance always has two key parts to it. Repentance always, number one, requires a turning away from your own wicked sin. A turning away from your own wicked sin. And number two, a turning toward Jesus Christ and starting to walk in his path of righteousness. And so this last Wednesday, as we were following up from uh, the message last week I shared with you from Gene Apple, uh, we spent some time this week talking about specifically the sins within the homosexual community, whether it's gay or lesbian or other types of sins that come in the LGBT community. We spent some time talking about repentance because that word repent wasn't specifically mentioned in that message last week, and we were so happy that we were able to talk about it a little bit more on Wednesday. Many of you caught that. You know what? It's a glorious message about loving those who are struggling with a different sin than you. There were some marvelous points made in that message. We have to love the sinner, amen? Because we all fall short of the glory of God. But at the same time, when we speak the truth in love, we need to include repentance in that conversation, amen? That was a key part of Jesus' message. And so regardless of what sin you struggle with, we have people come into our church that struggle with sins of addiction, whether it's drugs or alcohol. We've had a number come through our church. We have a number here today that would say, you know what? I was an alcoholic. I was a drug addict. 
And when they come and hear the good news of Jesus Christ, praise God, we receive them lovingly, don't we? But as we in love share the message of God's word, we let them know if you want to align yourself with Jesus Christ, you need to turn from that lifestyle sin and begin following the way of righteousness in Jesus Christ. Those that come out of heterosexual sexual sins, those that are living together, I don't know how many times I've had conversations with boyfriend, girlfriend, fiancés that are living together, sexually active together, and I let them know that's not God's plan. And in fact, I won't even perform your wedding ceremony unless you choose to live apart and stop having relations until your wedding night. And many times people have politely listened and they leave my office and basically say under their breath, forgive the French, screw you. And other times, praise God, there have been some that have, you know what, they leave the office and they wrestle with it and they pray about it. You know what, I tried to find something in the Word of God to disagree with that, but I can't. Okay, Pastor, we'll do it. And we have a couple here today where when they decided to get married, even though they'd lived together for some 20 years, the husband was in his truck for two weeks before their wedding day because he didn't want to live in sin any longer. Praise God for that. <laughs> Repentance requires that we turn from the lifestyle of sin. And so regardless of what the sin may be, some say, okay, well, I didn't ever struggle with a lifestyle sexual sin, and I didn't struggle with addiction, never really dealt with alcohol or, or drugs or anything like that. But you know what? Some of us have a lifestyle of being extremely negative people, very bitter, very anger, very angry, very vengeful in ways. And Jesus says, regardless of what that is that has pulled you away from God, that has separated you from God. The message is the good news of Jesus Christ offers you grace and mercy and forgiveness. But the grace and mercy and forgiveness will require that you walk in repentance. You turn from that dead-end lifestyle you were living and you begin living in the kingdom of God for His honor and glory. Guys, we're all in the same boat. We're sinners in need of grace. And we're all in the same boat in this way as well. We all need to repent, to make a spiritual U-turn and put our lifestyles of sin behind us and start following Jesus Christ with everything we've got. Amen? Now, one of the difficult things for us as Christians is we are impatient people. And that process of repentance usually doesn't happen overnight. Someone will make a decision for Jesus Christ and we see that over the weeks and the months, slowly but surely, they're turning their, themselves little by little away from that lifestyle of sin. Sometimes people do it like that. They quit drugs cold turkey. They quit alcohol cold turkey. They move out from their a boyfriend's house or whatever cold turkey. But oftentimes it drags on a while. And the question I think Gene posed so well at the end of the message last week, are we going to be patient and compassionate and loving enough to allow God to continue to work little by little by little His work of repentance in their lives while we just love on them and continue to speak the truth in love. It's not easy to do. But Jesus Christ's disciples went out there. They preached the message of repentance. I'm sure many gave their lives to Christ immediately. Others, maybe it took a while longer. But they gave the message and were faithful to what Jesus Christ had called them to do. 
They went and they preached this message of repentance, and I'm guessing their message may have gone something like this as well. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the long-awaited Savior of the world. He is setting up His kingdom, so you'd better get on board. If you don't repent of your sin and fall in line with the King, you will be judged and found guilty by the King. But if you embrace and follow the King, you will get to enjoy the wonderful blessings within the kingdom of God. I think that was their basic good news message. And all of the miracles that accompanied that message, the driving out of the demons and the healing of the sick and the curing of the diseases, they were all just a small, small taste of the wonderful blessings that exist within Jesus' kingdom. I thought that was kind of cool. I I don't normally think of miracles in Jesus' ministry that way, but it kind of hit me last week. Yeah, that was just a small taste of the wonderful blessings that are within the kingdom of heaven. Amen? And so as someone was able to see for the first time as their blind eyes were opened, their eyes saw the beauty of God's creation here on earth. It's as if the apostles were saying, you see all the beautiful stuff out here on earth? That's just a taste of the beauty you will see with those eyes in heaven. And someone who was able to stand for the first time and walk on those legs that had been crippled, you think it's kind of cool walking around this earth on legs? Wait until you get to walk in heaven someday. You ain't seen nothing yet. It's just a taste. When they drove a demon out of a demon-possessed guy and he was set free for the first time in some cases for years, you think it's great to be set free from that demon that was living within you, wait until you get to be set free from this earth in entirety and get to live in glorious presence of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ in heaven. It was just a taste. It was just a taste of the good things that come in the, heaven of, in the kingdom of heaven. I thought of that verse, taste and see that the Lord is good and taste and see that the kingdom of the Lord is good. In verse 3, before Jesus' disciples headed out on their mission, Jesus gave them some last-minute packing instructions. These are pretty interesting. His packing instructions there in verse 3 pretty much boiled down to this. Don't pack anything. Well, that would be just a little bit unnerving. Don't pack anything. Travel light. No large stick for protection. Don't worry about getting mugged along the way. No large stick to protect yourselves. No duffel bag to carry stuff. No toothbrush, no brush, no change of socks, no food, no money, no change of clothes. Huh? You don't want me to take anything? Nope, just the clothes on your back. They'll, they'll work just fine. The disciples' mission likely lasted for at least a few weeks, if not for a few months. How would you like to head out on an extended trip with nothing but the clothes on your back? You've got no money in your wallet? You've got no stick, no pepper spray, those little electric zappers some of you ladies have in your purses. I try not to get ladies angry these days because they've got the little stun guns in their purse, you know. I didn't do anything. (laughs) Whatever it is, you can't take that. No change of clothes, just the clothes on you. How would it be if we went on an extended trip and, and Jesus told us, don't take anything, travel light? Why on earth did Jesus want his disciples to travel so light? Well, I like how Bible scholar William Barclay answers this question. He writes, The man who travels light travels far and fast. The more a man is cluttered up with material things, the more he is shackled to one place. God needs a settled ministry 
but he also needs those who will abandon earthly things to adventure for him. God's called me to be a pastor. I am in a settled ministry. The the calling to be a pastor is the calling to go to a church and pastor it for an extended length of time. Many pastors in America have forgotten about that because the average, the last I looked, of senior pastors in a single church is something like two and a half to three and a half years in America. That's not enough time to stay and do good ministry. Now, some would look at my 19 and say, well, maybe, Dane, that's a little too long. You know, that's up to your opinion. But the, the role and the call of a pastor is the pastor to go to a place and stay and minister over an extended period of time. But God calls some to be more the evangelist. Some to be the missionaries where they go and they do work for a short amount of time and they move on to the next adventure to replicate it in a new place with a new group of people. And I wonder today if God has called some of you here to that wonderful adventure of ministry where you travel light and you go from place to place and do the work He calls you to do for a limited amount of time until He says now it's time to move on to the next place. I wonder if God is calling some of you not to hop from church to church. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the ministry that you do is a ministry that's on the move. And you minister there and then over there to this group of people and then to that group of people. It's a wonderful adventure. One of our former young adult members, Cora Mahaffey, uh, just left, left I think about a week and a half ago to go to an undisclosed country in the Middle East. She couldn't even say the name of the country because it is objecting to the receiving of the gospel message. And what a blessing that she's gone for several months and dedicated several months of her young adult years to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ in a country where the leaders do not want to hear it. What a wonderful blessing that is. God calls some of us to that kind of adventurous ministry. The mission of sharing the good news is an urgent mission. People's lives depend on it. Eternal souls are at stake. So we don't have time to piddle around and prepare for every contingency. Jesus' disciples didn't have all the answers. So what? They needed to get out there and start preaching the gospel anyway. Their mission was urgent, and so was ours. Jesus wanted his 12 apostles to travel light so they could travel far and fast. But I think there was also another reason why he wanted them to travel light. He did this in order to teach them to rely on God for their every need. Amen? To rely on God for their every need along the way. Jesus' disciples didn't have all the material resources. Conventional wisdom said that they would need for this kind of trip. So what? As long as they were doing Jesus' work and they had the blessing of God on on their marching orders, they didn't need to pack all the stuff that conventional wisdom said they would need to pack. God would supply all of their needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Amen? Do you suppose the same holds true today as we follow God's marching orders? You you, you figure the, the same holds true today as we carry out God's mission for us? As I mentioned, I've been here 19 years, and I can tell you in those 19 years, God time and time and time again as Christine and I have tried to be faithful in carrying out God's marching orders for us here in Victorville, California, as we've tried to be faithful in carrying out the mission that He had for us, time and time again, God has provided our needs when we didn't know how He was going to do it. 
And I can tell you story after story of how God has met our needs. I just want to share one with you that's one of my personal favorites. It was four years ago, early 2015, and the situation at our church, we had some similar struggles as we're having early this year in 2019. In early 2015, the elders and I were getting our heads together, and we realized we needed to make some big cuts in the budget. The offerings weren't quite where they needed to be to accommodate the budget from the prior year. And so early 2015, we were looking not just to take a scalpel to the budget, but a hatchet. And so as I looked down at the budget time and time again, I saw my salary there and I knew something had to give. And so I talked it over with Christine and I went to the elders and said, you know what, we need to cut back my salary here because we've got to make some major cuts to this budget. And so Christian and I had worked out a way that the church could drop my medical insurance coverage and we could switch over to MediShare and save about $4,000 a year. Save the church about $4,000 a year. And so MediShare, if you're not familiar with it, is not truly insurance. It's a group of thousands upon thousands of Christians who will pitch in several hundred dollars a month into a pool. And when someone has a medical expense all of those in that pool will help to cover those medical expenses. And so it's a sharing of medical expenses. It's not true insurance. But this was going to save the church about 4000 a year. Our new budget in 2015 kicked in at the start of our fiscal year on April 1st. So by April 1st, we had made the shift from a Blue Shield PPO plan, which was pretty good insurance covered, pretty good PPO. We shifted over from Blue Shield. We dropped that and took on MediShare. And so it was fully in effect April 1st, 2015. Within six weeks, we were down at Loma Linda Hospital, and our nine-year-old Kara was being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Within the first night of being in that hospital, her medical bills had already soared well past $10,000. And because we wanted to save the church some money and save ourselves some money, we had gone with the $10,000 deductible plan with MediShare. And so like this, we were on the hook for $10,000 plus. Christine and I were dealing with the tragedy of hearing that our little girl was diagnosed with this life-threatening disease and at the same time wondering how on earth are we going to pay these bills. And then when the nurses told us that the monthly supplies would be somewhere in the neighborhood of $1,000 every month, we were wondering how on earth we were going to pay for this. The next day after Kara was admitted, we sat down with the, the finance and billing department there at Loma Linda University Hospital, and we were sharing the situation. And this is where it gets really interesting. As we were explaining the situation, because MediShare is not truly insurance, Kara was considered by the hospital to be uninsured. And because she was considered to be uninsured, they were able to fast-track the process of getting her covered with a Medi-Cal plan, supplementing the Medi-Cal plan with another children's insurance plan. And with those two working together, we didn't owe a dime by the end of that stay in the hospital. And we came to find out that because she was on this Medi-Cal plan supplemented by this other plan, because she was on that, she was given some of the medical supplies that she would not have been given had we remained on the Blue Shield plan that we had gotten off of two months earlier, that in the eyes of most was a much superior plan. If we had stayed on Blue Shield, 
we would have been on the hook for several thousand dollars with that hospital stay. We would have been on the hook for several hundred dollars every month after that. And as we paid several, several hundred every month after that, those medical supplies would have been inferior to the ones we were getting by the plan that was provided as we sat down there with the hospital staff. And as we look back at the big picture, there we were in January and February as leaders in this church saying, I don't see what's going on here, Lord. Why are the offerings down? Why do we have to drop our insurance? It's scary. It's uncomfortable. But because God was orchestrating everything together for his good, because the offerings were down, it forced us to make a decision with the insurance. And because we were forced to make a decision with the insurance, in the long run, it saved my family from some month after month financial difficulties and provided my daughter with better care than she ever would have received on the original plan. Isn't God awesome? And I could tell you story after story of times that we've looked back with hindsight and said, Wow! God, I didn't see that one coming. He is a God that works all things together for good for those who trust in Him and love Him with all their hearts. And He is a God who will supply all of your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Oh, you just keep being faithful in serving Him and trusting Him. And you know what? He will do the same for you. He is a need-meeting God. And He blows my mind on a regular basis with how He does it. I see Alan smiling back there. Amen, Alan? Amen. Amen. Verses 4 and 5 real quickly here. Jesus told the twelve disciples, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. What's Jesus' point here? His point is, since time is short, focus on sharing the good news with those who actually want to hear it. Don't waste your time arguing with a town full of people who refuse to accept the truth. Move on. Perhaps the Holy Spirit will convict them after you leave, but since there are so many towns out there filled with people who want to hear the gospel message, spend your time wisely sharing Christ with the people in those towns. Then in verse 6, So they set out and went from village to village preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. There's a little shift that takes place in verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see Jesus. Now Luke doesn't tell us about how John died, but Matthew and Mark do. In Matthew 14 and Mark 6, most of you have heard the story. John the Baptist was imprisoned because he preached out against Herod Antipas. He said, Herod, hey, you shouldn't tell that new wife of yours. You shouldn't have told her to divorce her husband, who happened to also be your brother. You had her divorce your brother so you can marry her. And on top of all of that, she's your niece. And so John the Baptist was preaching about that. John, uh, uh, Herod Antipas didn't like John preaching about that, so he put him in prison, and a few months later he had John's head chopped off. 
And so Matthew and Mark share that with us. And so by this time in Luke 9, John had already been executed. And there Herod Antipas is wondering, what on earth is going on? I hear about this guy out there performing miracles and drawing thousands in a crowd. Has John the Baptist raised from the dead? And he's confused. Maybe he's a little scared, but he wants to see Jesus. But Jesus doesn't take the time to go to the palace and speak to Herod. Why? For the same reason he told his disciples, don't hang out in a town if they don't want to hear the gospel. Shake the dust off your feet and go somewhere that they do want to hear the gospel. So Jesus wasn't about to waste his own time going to the palace of this arrogant guy, Herod Antipas, who had no desire to repent, who had no desire to turn his life around, who had no desire to accept Christ. He wanted to see a dog and pony show, and Jesus said, I don't have time for this. I'm going to spend my time sharing the gospel with those who want to hear it. Verse 10, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. If we had a picture of Jesus' twelve apostles returning to Jesus at the end of their mission, I think there would be this great caption over these pairs of two returning to Jesus. And I think that caption would read, Mission Accomplished. I've thought about putting that over that little picture of Kara standing there, grinning ear to ear, next to her little hamster's cage. The mission was to raise $30 and bring home cocoa. And over that picture, she could put mission accomplished. And I'm sure she'd spell those words wrong, and it would be so cute, and we'd treasure it always. And as these, uh, these 12 apostles returned home to Jesus, it was mission accomplished. And Lord willing, next week we'll pick up in verse 11 and see what happens after they return to Jesus and continue that third phase of ministry where Jesus and those apostles together are healing the sick and driving out the demons and bringing hope to the hurting and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. He called them to do that, and He's calling you and me to do the same, to heal those that are sick as we pray for them to reach out in compassion and love to those that are hurting and downtrodden and discouraged and depressed. And most importantly, to share the good news of Jesus Christ, that He gives us an opportunity to turn from our sin, to put Him in the driver's seat of our life and follow Him from this point forward until He calls us to our glorious home in heaven where there's no more pain and no more sorrow and no more temptation and no more sin. I can't wait. But until that time, I serve Him faithfully here until He calls me home. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the mission You've given us to reach out to the hurting, to pray for those who are sick, to lift up the discouraged, and to share the good news of Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is near because the King of heaven is near. Lord Jesus, help us to boldly share the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us in compassion and love to reach out to those that are hurting. Help us, Lord, to see transformation in the lives around us as we carry out your marching orders and walk in obedience to the mission you've given us. And Lord, behind me, I thank you for those banners that remind us each week of our mission we have together here at First Christian Church to share the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully. Lord, to teach Your Word faithfully and to equip this generation to serve Christ. Thank You, Lord. 
Help us as we carry out your mission in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. As our praise team.